Hey y'all, my name is Ann Wyatt. I started my career in workforce development with the state of Kentucky in 2010. That experience ignited a deep passion for manufacturing within me. I started this show hoping to raise more awareness around the bright outlook manufacturing careers have. Join me as I sit down with some of the manufacturing industry's most successful change makers and learn how they're partnering people with technology. It's time to give people more meaningful work. This is Workforce 4.0. I hope all of you are doing well. I'm super excited to have Tom Brulette with us today on Workforce 4.0. And I just want to say, Tom, that I have gotten to know you um, a little bit over the past couple of months with a couple of calls that we've done and everything. And mm-hmm. you are just such a gem. And I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to connect with you and learn more about you and all of your industry experience. And you've certainly taught me several things during our exchanges. And I'm excited to have you. Welcome. Oh, that's, thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. I, I really do appreciate it. I was in, actually, I was in the Netherlands last week or the last two weeks visiting our daughter. And she brought me into their standard coffee shop but coffee shops all over. That's the thing there. And so we ordered the coffee and I talked to the barista for a, for a bit and we came back the next week and it was a different person. And she said, Oh my God, you're Olivia's father. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, the person that was here last week said you were such a charmer. They enjoyed talking with you and getting to know you a little bit and it's a different person. So, you know, my philosophy is that it costs me nothing to get to know people, <clears throat> to respond to people, and to smile at people. Because it's many times it's it's what gets people through the day. So anyhow, I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you so much for those kind words, and I appreciate you including me on your show. Absolutely. You know, we kind of got, I reached out to you because I was more, I was very interested in learning more about the digital supply chain. And after speaking with you, I was just like, oh my gosh, you've got to come on my show and talk to everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to develop out a service, a solution service, a consulting service, I should say, from the uh, digital supply chain and visibility, because it is such an important topic right now. And visibility is the cornerstone, the foundation of the digital transformation in supply chain. And I don't think in many cases it gets its fair share. It gets a fair view because I see the supply chain and the digital supply chain as being, as shifting rapidly from a cost reduction focus to a business enhancement and business capability focus. And I think that over the years, we've done such a good job at at focusing on process and procedures and flow that we can also extend that perspective, that viewpoint into other areas of the business to, to improve everything. So anyhow. Interesting. Yeah. And I know the supply chain has been such a hot topic over the last couple of years with COVID and everything. And um, Mm -hmm. it seems like demand's going through the roof. And then you're, you know, when I was talking to clients or manufacturing companies, trying to understand their challenges during that time, which were, I think, Mm -hmm. quite unique. 
it seems to me like a lot of them had a huge problem getting this the the supplies that they needed to even push the product. So it, it was a bit of awakening and a realization, I think, for the supply chain because what we came to realize is that after about the fifth time that we said, "Oh, this is a 500-year flood" or "This is a 500, you know, a hundred-year pandemic," I think people started to realize, well, maybe maybe we need to look at this as not once in a lifetime, but as a regular occurrence. And and I think that's where we're at right now. And I think it gives a lot of opportunity to the workforce as well. This, you know, the point of the matter is that we need to make our work more interesting to engage people so that they are actually using their head and providing value rather than simply moving boxes or or picking something up here and setting it down there or clicking a box on the screen. It's not, it's not going to make anybody's life better and it's not going to move us forward. I learned a long time ago, the way to understand something is to actually go out on the floor and do the job. Mm, I love that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I hear that a lot from my HR people. They're like, you know, we, try to get out there and we try to talk to our employees and engage with our employees as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really key to building that culture, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And absolutely. then improving your retention, but that kind of gets into more in depth of our conversation. And, you know, before we get too far down the rabbit hole today, I've got to ask you, what is your favorite karaoke song or just your favorite song? Because you know, I love music. <laughs> you know, this is the toughest question. First of all, my my favorite performer is Brian Ferry, and the band would be Roxy Music. And I think my favorite song would be The Thrill of It All by Roxy Music. So it's just, you know, a lot of their music is just so haunting that it really catches, it, it, it always caught my attention, put it that way. But that's what I would say, yes. Now, is it a karaoke song? Hell, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything. <laughs> anything by Roxy Music uh, on, on karaoke. That's so, a new one for um, me. I'll have to check this out, Roxy Music. Check out Roxy Music. It's a bit off the beaten path, let's say. But they've been around since the late 70s, actually. Yeah, but I feel like we kind of resonate in that we both like kind of deeper things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I would really like them for that reason. If it's yeah. I feel like they would be kind of a deeper. Yeah. Band. Oh, yeah. Give it a try. Give it a try. I recommend it. Yeah. Absolutely. And you can pick it up. And here's my shameless plug. You can find it on YouTube Music very easily. You could actually you can actually request YouTube music to play a Roxy music station and get a great sampling. Interesting. I haven't tried YouTube music. You know, I'm, I'm an Apple music person. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. of my friends love Spotify. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking about going that direction, but <laughs> it'll take a, a lot of convincing. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I'm an Android person and I'm sure there's some type of, of feature in the Apple and the iTunes or Spotify. I think they have the same type of features. So 
Anyhow, now we've spent all of this time on different topics. Yes, yes, we'll rein it in. So, yeah, let's go ahead and get started um, with some of this deeper stuff here. Speaking of which, on the supply chain, seeing mm -hmm. that we went through this time period, COVID, for a multitude of reasons, obviously, but with the supply chain and how it relates to the supply chain, it really made us get smarter as an industry on how we utilize the supply chain and what we can think about moving forward, future possibilities, work or a supply chain 4.0, if, if mm -hmm. that's a thing yet. Um, but where do you see the future of the supply chain moving in 10 years? And what is, how's that different from like today, how we see it today? Um, I, I see over the next 10 years, a greater and greater integration across all the partners from end to end. So from the extraction of raw materials through the manufacturing, through the shipments, through the wholesaler, through the stores, through the customer, and then eventually as appropriate, the customer return back to the suppliers. So that whole idea of a, that whole concept of a circular supply chain in a circular market is going to become more and more prevalent as proof we are starting to see a great a growing interest in this concept along with sustainability globally and, and in fact europe is Europe is basically leaps and bounds ahead of the U.S. in their commitment to reduction in their carbon level footprints. And this is where the visibility really comes into play because you cannot measure anything and track anything unless you have detailed visibility from the very beginning to the very end. So I think we can count on that over the next 10 years. I think the next thing would be more of a global supply chain. I see the supply chain changing from a lowest cost focus to a availability focus. So in other words, right now, you know, during the pandemic, what was highlighted, and if you take the microchips as an example, what was highlighted was that it's generally a bad thing that they're sourced from one location, especially if that one location, that one country has a shutdown. So now everybody's impacted. So from a, what I mean by a globalized supply chain is that it just makes sense to, to blend suppliers. So we might have, we'll have a supplier in, in well, the, the microchips are in Taiwan. We'll have a supplier in Taiwan, and then they're also building plants in the U.S. and in different global locations so that you can supply chips from multiple different areas and offset any kind of disruption that you're seeing. The disruptions that we've been seeing, one significant portion of it was the availability of the product and the shutdown of manufacturing in certain areas where they're you know, if it's only manufactured in China and China shut down their, their factories, well, guess what? But the next thing that we saw was the 
the packaging of the product, okay? So let me give you an example. My favorite example was dairy and milk. When the pandemic shut down all of the schools and, and work locations and businesses, it created a shortage of milk in the grocery stores, right? All of the milk shelves were, were empty. And that was not because there was not enough milk. It was because the milk could only be packaged in institutional sizes. So again, where visibility comes into play. So your demand forecast and demand execution is going to be another significant focus over the next 10 years to get better at planning and managing the inventory. Um, yeah, come to think about it, I was in Publix the other day, actually, imagine mm -hmm. that, because that's, that's what we have here is Publix, but I was in Publix the other day, and I don't know if you've noticed, packaging was a huge deal during the pandemic, and like, we have still adopted some of those workarounds. I think, you know, if you go to the store, do you remember, I remember there was a company in Bowling Green called AEP, mm -hmm. and they produced the plastic bags for the Frito-Lay. Okay. Um, so like uh -huh. all the individual chips. But do you guys, I was thinking about this the other day, and that's why it came across my mind. But do you remember when we had those plastic bags? And now if you go to the store, it's at least here. If you go to the store, it seems like we've completely replaced those with cardboard. Yeah. And I think that yeah. was a symptom or, or like, I guess, a side effect of that. Well, a third factor that's going to play heavily in the, in the supply chain over the next 10 years is the sustainability. Um, and that's where you start to get into the bags. And if you've ever looked at the bags, the packaging material, the packaging material is going to change dramatically because the vast majority of packaging material is non-recyclable. So I saw an interesting story that what we're seeing, what we're starting to realize is that the materials that we use in manufacturing are not a never-ending supply. It's a finite supply of material. And there's a finite amount of space that you can actually throw the material away. So, you know, from a, from, a, from a garbage dump perspective, we're running out of space. From a plastic perspective, you hear all the time the bottles being just turning up in the ocean. In fact, how many companies, there's a luggage manufacturer that I know of, there's a company that pulls the plastic bottles from the ocean and they reprocess the plastic into beads and jewelry that they sell in order to fund their work. But if you take a look at everything that you have in your house, not everything, but as you're going through things, as you're eating your potato chips or whatever, and it's in a box, take a look at that and see if it's recyclable. Take a look at the pla pla plastic is unbelievably unrecyclable. For instance, take your yogurt container or, you know, I'm a big Aldi shopper. So you have all of that packaging from Aldi. The yogurt containers are my favorite example. The wrapper around the container is not recyclable. 
And so in order to get it recycled, you have to do extra work. And who's going to do extra work? Certainly isn't, you know, I mean, your first reaction is, ah, hell, that's too much trouble to take the wrapper off, you know, but it's going to get interesting because since, you know, since China quit accepting our garbage, our recyclables, we're going to run into a significant problem and we have to reuse that. And that's where the whole circular supply chain comes into play, Mm -hmm. right? I'm an old man. When I was a kid, we had we had glass bottles for everything, Coca-Cola and, and all of this, you know, milk and everything. When I was a kid, if you were lucky enough to have a milkman, he would come and deliver the glass bottles to your house and take your empties away. And they would take those and sanitize them and reuse them. Now, the plastic bottles themselves are maybe recyclable, but that little twist cap that leaves the ring around it, is not. And so the whole bottle is garbage. So people, we have to start looking at these things in a different way. And so tying that back to visibility, take a look at sustainability and ESG. ESG stands for environmental, social, and government regulations. Okay. It's a climate if you will, a measurement of your carbon footprint measurement. What I find fascinating is that there's three areas of measurement that are generally accepted, generally followed. And they they break them down into three scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three. So scope one is your internal things like your office work or scope two might be that. The second scope is how do you process that and how do you handle that internally? Scope three, though, is the complicated one. Scope three takes into account the carbon measurement, the carbon footprint, what it costs from a carbon perspective from the raw material to the customer delivery. And so governments now are expecting, demanding, measurement of that to meet your your specific carbon goals. In fact, Germany changed their regulations. They heavily fine companies that do business in Germany, whether global companies, local companies, or whatnot. They require them to track their carbon footprint along with the slavery aspect in the manufacturing. So it's fair treatment. They track the fair treatment of of workers in overseas manufacturing factories and so that they're treated fairly, they're paid fairly, and they work in a safe environment, right? And the fine is not pennies. The fine is a percentage of their total global sales. So if it's a $20 billion company and they're fined 2% because they're missing some of these goals, that's pretty significant to me. Yeah. Um, I wonder, do you think that we'll ever get there? This is a, also a hot topic, how the circular supply chain and what the EU is doing. Do you mm-hmm. think that we'll ever get there in the States? I honestly go through peaks and valleys. I go through times of optimism 
and times of depression from that perspective. And I'll tell you why, because I think from a society, from a civilian perspective, I am extremely encouraged with the younger generations, the millennials, the X, you know, the XYZ, because they are focused on that. They think about that. I am highly dejected and depressed when I review what's being done by, especially by the federal government and the regulations. But it's kind of offset by the financial industry. So the financial industry is the one that's really controlling this, in my opinion, because especially the retirement funds, it's, it's all of these financial planners. So they are the, the people that are managing these huge retirement funds, the state of New Jersey, the state of California, because of demands from their participants, from their customers, they are reducing their investments on polluters. There's been a huge reduction in the usage of coal, as an example, to produce electricity. Mm -hmm. The way it looks to me, one of the most significant factors in that reduction is the response of these financial managers for these huge retirement funds. They're pulling their investments from these companies that are heavy polluters. And so it's forcing them to do something. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful, I'm cautiously optimistic that the combination of the younger people really focused on, on that aspect, the societal aspect, and driving a response from the financial planners and the financial industry, it will, it will drive change. Then the second factor is it truly is a global economy. So if Germany is finding companies that do business in Germany, guess what? Dow is there. P&G is there. They're all involved. Walmart, they're all involved. They all have to do something about it. So will it happen as quickly? Nothing ever does. But we may be surprised at, at the results and how quickly it happens. The good news is you've got 90% of the world that accept the climate change aspect and, and accept the fact that we as a society have to do something about it. I think you really touched a big nerve. I feel like as a millennial, there's this underlying optimism that we hope things mm -hmm. will change in a lot of ways. I think everybody is kind of experiencing this inhumanity, at least in the States, the same feeling. Right. Yeah. You know, oh, absolutely. See that reflected. I agree. It's a generational thing. It's not like a, a regional thing. It's more of a generational thing that people begin to realize that. And so it, it truly is a positive result and it gives me hope every day. So when we're moving towards the future of the supply chain and manufacturing, 
coal was a very good example. That was a thriving industry in Kentucky where I was born and raised for decades. As the restrictions on coal grew, we saw a lot of coal miners lose their job and unemployment increase and all that. Mm -hmm. um, it, as, as a positive takeaway to that, there is a, a nonprofit up there that's doing a lot of work on retraining and reskilling um, those that have been affected by that community called Ecomi. So I think that use case is very applicable for any other like manufacturing or supply chain jobs. Right. But what jobs do you think will likely be eliminated during this transition to, to digital supply chain? And, and what jobs do you think will come out of this? As a I think in broad brushstrokes, the jobs that will be eliminated are the jobs that are 100% manual. So for instance, the jobs putting boxes on shelves, the jobs picking items, picking product to put in boxes to ship to, whether it's a store or a customer. I think those are high up on the hit list of elimination. However, you should do a little bit re of research because what I've seen or understand from the past is that every cycle that we go through that eliminates a certain job, it creates more higher level jobs. So I, I may lose a million manual labor type jobs. And I'm just throwing a number out there. Yeah. By the same token, there will probably be 2 million jobs at a higher level, different type of job, but at a higher level, a little bit more complicated that will be generated. So generally speaking, broad brushstrokes, the jobs that are eliminated are more than replaced with the, the next level job, the next version job, the next generation job. I think that kind of plays into your whole point there is how do we retrain and expand the workforce for these new types of jobs? Exactly. People have to realize this is not rocket science. I'm sorry. I'm an old man. I've been in the supply chain and for, I think, longer than you've been alive, which is a scary thought for me. When I started off, when I started off, IT was called data processing. And it was taught as a skill, like a bricklayer or a carpenter. So I went to work for Sears Roebuck and they put me through a 13 week training program and coming out of it, I knew how to code. I knew how to code, I knew how to test and the, and the rest is, as they say is history. Now you've got four year degrees, eight year, you know, you've got a, a boatload of different types of degrees. But think about this. When I was starting off, there was no such thing as a data scientist. There was no such thing as data analytics. So my one job really turned into a half a dozen or a dozen by specializing in different things. So as you go through this, we're going to find that there's really going to be a lot of new jobs, interesting jobs that that will provide value they'll feel good about doing it i think of coal as being replaced with solar in many aspects 
And wouldn't it be nice instead of going down into a black hole and breathing carbon, uh, coal dust and, and all of those health concerns, you're actually working in a nice clean factory. Your fingernails never get dirty. And yet you're making more money than you ever did going into that dangerous environment and producing something that moves the country forward. That's where this all comes into play. That's how we affect the change. Preach, Tom. This is why Tom <laughs> is on the show, because he will light you up. I was actually, I was writing a lot of that down, some of your quotes that you just mm -hmm. had there, because I think they're just so powerful. You know, it's not rocket science. And I think it's interesting because I'm a millennial. I think a lot of us, we're a little freaked out. Okay, we're mm -hmm. looking around, we're mm -hmm. a little freaked out. Okay, the housing market's crazy and we got the yep. banks melting down. So we're kind of looking at workforce in the same light. We're like, how in the world did previous generations cross that bridge? How do we go from apprenticeship programs and in-house training and all of this to just like our, our four-year degrees, which the programs are awesome. But how do we get in this labor shortage, right? Yeah, yeah. I've come to believe is much of this is a, quite frankly, a financial discussion. There is money to be made in training programs and college degrees. You know, they had, it was very simple at one point in time. And now you've got, you know, you could get a college degree for 10, to 10, you know, 25 different types of nursing, for instance. And a lot of that is, I, I mean, it's directly related to how much money can these schools make selling these degrees. And the other thing is that we're going to start to see an increase in velocity. The changes are going to occur faster and faster because the technology is driving that force, right? As we know more, we're able to do things faster, more efficiently, more smoothly. So from a supply chain perspective, we're coordinating both long-term and short-term deliveries to come up with a smooth plan for inventory, right? So you think about that and that's gonna, that's starting to shift to other areas. You know, it dawned on me the other day, I was reading an article on the economy and the author was saying, well, you can't plan on the economy because things are changing so much. And I thought, you know, that sounds exactly like what people were saying about the supply chain five years ago. It's very stable, some things will happen, but you can't plan on disruptions. Well, guess what? Now we're at the point, um, and I'm shamelessly tying back to my focus, visibility and trackability. We are coming back to the point where with accurate data, with artificial intelligence, with automation, with machine learning, you're going to be able to understand and make those decisions in a faster manner. Absolutely irresponsible to think that the economy is some mythical, magical beast that you can't count. I've been through these cycles and the only group of people that loses out on an economy are the general workers, the people like you or I, the people that work hard for a living. Those financial planners, those financial managers, 
those banks, they don't ever lose any money. They don't have any skin in the game, really. They're not held accountable for this. They have the tools available to forecast and drive selling stock. You mean to tell me that they can't develop the tools to identify disruptions in the economy and respond to those disruptions to smooth out and eliminate a recession? In what alternative universe does that make any sense at all? So what advice would you have for the younger generations of the workforce to do these new jobs? And because we kind of want to know things, I feel like, as mm-hmm. a generation. Where are we going? Oh, yeah. Generation? Yeah. Curious yeah. and depressed all at the same time. Because they see what's going on and it's like, where the hell am I going to be? What am I supposed to do in 10 years? What does my retirement look like? You know, am I rubbing sticks together and, and you know, cutting things with sharp rocks? What's going to happen? What I think, first of all, it requires a an acceptance, a focus, and a thoughtfulness about a continuous process. I don't know what's going to happen six months from now, but I pretty much know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if I see something that I can make better, then maybe I should make tomorrow's tomorrow better and make the day after that better. The second thing is the fact that the population growth has, for all intents and purposes, stopped. And so there's only a certain number of people. And so because there's only a certain number of people, I believe it will drive a greater focus on retraining, retooling. And the third thing is to be creative. We're in the midst of two significant changes. One is driven by that gig economy. And the second thing is related to the velocity of change that we're seeing. I may not be doing the same job tomorrow that I'm doing today, but the skills that I that I use or learn for today's job should allow me to work into that new job. So I need to be creative to understand and, and really plan or make that play on how do I move to a next job, but always focus on, I can only count on one job at a time. I can only count on today because tomorrow or next year, I don't know what's going to happen, which is significantly different. When I was young, you worked for one company for your life and you got a pension. And as long as you worked hard, you were set for life. And we went through a series of changes and revisions to that until now we're at the point. I tell people over and over, a long-term job is three years. If you keep your job for three to five years, that's a long time. And you need to start thinking about that. And where am I going to be three to five years from now? What am I going to be doing? Because the velocity of change is increasing. And so that's one of the bigger inhibitors that I see is the healthcare industry. Because on the one hand, I have a gig environment coming into play and people have to be able to change jobs. They're not actually working for a company. They're contracting their time for a period. Where is their healthcare coming from? Because traditionally, the healthcare industry in the U.S. was developed based on the fact that people spent their lifetime at a job. Now people aren't doing it. So that healthcare system needs to be retooled and reevaluated, I think. And that's one of the things that we're going to see coming out of this as well. Yeah, I think so too. 
that's an interesting perspective. What do you think companies and should they embrace this? I feel like I'm in the camp of companies need to embrace the fact that there are a limited number of workers when the jobs mm. change, right? And as they progress and transition, it would benefit them more to be more proactive in their mm -hmm. approach to reskilling and upskilling and all that, then it would be to choose the other road right. and not right. invest in their workforce. That's the camp that I'm in. I'm interested to hear more of what your thoughts are and what companies or if they even should lead that change on their own. My firm belief is that companies have a societal responsibility. Companies benefit from the society that they work in and that they support. The simplest example is that no major company would ever survive if they had to build their own roads. So we have a government that builds roads, builds highways, you know, supports the rail system and all of that. You don't get me wrong. I think that's a great thing. But I think that companies have a responsibility to maintain their workforce and not push that those responsibilities off to somebody else because there's nobody else there, right? So the smart companies, the survivors are going to look at this and say, well, if I start a training program, a retooling program, and make that inherent somehow, companies are going to need to do something along those lines. And they're going to need to, to realize that if I were a company, if I were the CEO of a company, a large company, quite frankly, I would be pushing for a Medicare for all type medical program because it increases my flexibility. And these companies pay a crap ton on benefits and healthcare and insurance and all of that. It would just make sense. They could save money if we had a different type of system. The problem and liability, though, too. Right, That's and liability. So you're talking about flexibility and being able to shift jobs, and these companies are destroying as many jobs. I would be pushing for a, a, a universal medical coverage, I would be willing to pay into that, the amount of money that I'm currently paying insurance companies to standardize that, because what happens is it increases my flexibility, my workforce flexibility. I can shrink and grow my workforce at will without a huge focus on how much is it going to cost me for added benefits and all of this other stuff. So that's what I would see. I'm like, really, we should be doing this, crickets. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Tom, I've got one more question here, if you've got mm -hmm. a little bit more time. Okay, I do. And we kind of touched on reshoring a little bit, I think, earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. But from a mm -hmm. geographical perspective, and I know this is a part of workforce development as it relates to the supply chain and some maybe through some of the lessons that we learned through COVID, mm -hmm. Where do you think the best geographical locations would be for, for some of these incoming sites? Well, first of all, I think it depends on the, on the product that's being manufactured. Um, you can't make a selection without taking a look at cost, right? 
from the U.S. perspective, you got to take into account labor, right? So I would see, if it were me, again, I would see an increase in manufacturing, especially high-end manufacturing, complicated manufacturing in more rural areas. Because in technology, we have been seeing a nearshoring type, a nearshoring concept where companies are developing their company using U.S. people in low-cost areas. From a technology perspective, if they spend a small, a relatively small amount training people up to do development in a low-cost area, they can deliver at half the cost. So I see that as a viable option for manufacturing and new plants. And the other thing is that it's just going to start making sense to really, the, the nearshoring needs to include probably Latin America and Canada, as far as that's concerned. Mexico and actually Uruguay. Uruguay is a very stable country. There's a huge technology aspect to that. More and companies are outsourcing their technology to Uruguay now because they're smart. It's a reasonable cost. And guess what? The time zone is not 12 hours away. But mm -hmm. if there's anything that goes wrong and you have to fix anything, you're not on that eight to 10 hour difference. Exactly. Um, exactly. Customer service is going to be a little bit more flexible mm -hmm. and respondent that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Mexico is a big, it can be a big aspect. I've spent some time there. What you're seeing from a supply chain perspective is a huge growth in um, warehousing distribution. They do a lot of imports from Asia and Indonesia and then distribute from there through Latin America and South America and even North America. So I see you, I think you're going to see more of that. They've got a huge workforce. They're smart people. They're hard workers. I think there's a stigma when you see on TV all of these people fleeing horrible conditions in their country in Latin America and Central America trying to come into the U.S. and that has a, that has a tendency to stigmatize the view of, of the people from those countries in broad strokes. But the people that I've dealt with are very well educated. They're very hard workers. They understand the process um, and they're just looking for the opportunity. It's like anybody else. It's like anybody else trying to raise a family. So we have a huge opportunity. The cost would be lower. The workforce is there and the transportation is cheaper, right? You don't have as far to go. You don't have the limitations on the ocean or air. So mm -hmm. I see that as a big, and I think that's going to start happening across the globe where, you know, perhaps Europe is more focused on developing manufacturing in Africa. For instance, you know, I see, I don't know, I see Africa as an untapped resource from a global perspective, just looking for an opportunity. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences that you don't realize are there. You know, we have a lot of conflict in the world because we're so dependent on oil, for instance, right? So some of these underdeveloped or developing countries if you were to give them a path forward, 
you know, you could eliminate a lot of hardship, a lot of problems. So that's kind of where I see it. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's some great stuff and really interesting. And as always, Tom, I really appreciate the deep dives. I love deep conversations like this. And I, I mm -hmm. love all of the rabbit holes that we end up uh, going down. And uh, <laughs> that's, it's, it just, it gives me some stuff to think about and focus on and, you know, really kind of visualize for the future. So mm -hmm. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Good. Good. I'm uh, glad. Absolutely. Before we go today, what is the best way to reach you or contact you? Probably through LinkedIn. Okay. And I know you're writing some articles on your own. So Tom is mm -hmm. also out there making waves and creating as well. Yeah. Tell but if anybody wants to look me up on LinkedIn, there's not too many Tom Briettes out there. It's relatively straightforward and I'm always you know, I'm continuously watching for it and I'm open to new contacts. Awesome. Yeah. I feel like Tom is a very open-minded individual. So just mm -hmm. reach out to him on LinkedIn, send him a message and connect with him there. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Thank you so much, Anne. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. I know we went over a lot of stuff today, so I'm really excited to go back and rewatch this and, and catch all of this good stuff. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.